I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, welcome to the Driven Celebrities podcast. I'm Andy J. Now, what a lineup we have for you this week. I am so chuffed with it. We have, well, absolute acting royalty, Nigel Havers. Love him. Legend. We have from Boyzone, Shane Lynch, who's actually here to also help advertise our other podcast, which is called the Driven Chat Podcast, which was an automotive skewing podcast and mostly for petrol heads. We have Olympic legend Ewan Thomas, top, top man, and is so honest and open with me. It's such an engrossing chat. And then our big guest, our long guest for this week, is the incredible David Badil, because he and I had such a lengthy and fascinating conversation that we couldn't include it all on the radio show because we simply don't have time. So that's one of the reasons why I have this podcast, so that we can give you more from our guests. And so David Badil, we have a feature-length conversation with him. If you'd like to subscribe to the pod, we'd really appreciate it. If you could give us a nice review, tell your friends and just share it if you're enjoying it, we'd really appreciate it. And if this is your first experience of the Driven Celebrities pod, why not check out our back catalogue? Because we have some massive names waiting for you to listen to. Anyway, thank you for your company. Do enjoy the show. Driven with Andy J on Talk Radio in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. My first guest is the star of blockbusters like Chariots of Fire, Empire of the Sun and A Passage to India. He's also a hugely successful TV presenter, has his own touring theatre company and he's sporting some of the greatest hair in the business. I'm delighted to welcome the one and only Nigel Havers. Nigel, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. The talking of hair, it's gone out of control. Right now. <laughs> I haven't had a cup for so long. I look like some bad person that would scare the kids away. You've had some pretty big <laughs> hair in several TV shows. You've had some pretty impressive big hair. I mean, is it, is it bigger than what you used to? No, I've had some very impressive hair over the years. And then, then I went for a much shorter cut recently. What I was filming when we were cut down was a, was a show called Finding Alice. And uh, I had very short hair, but that, that's a long time ago now. So it's gone a bit... Um, Father Christmas, huh? Nigel, you've done so much. I keep looking at your career, and I'm just sort of thinking, is there anything you haven't done? You've achieved um, so much in your career. I haven't career. played Hamlet. Right. I haven't played Hamlet. Um, uh, and once I was so keen to play Hamlet that I learned it as a sort of exercise. And, and um, I never got it. And then they never asked me. They picked somebody else, I think. And, <laughs> and I've forgotten it now. And I think it's a bit late to play Hamlet. Apart, apart from that, I once wanted to do the um, BBC many, many years ago were going to film a very favourite book of mine called Fair Stood the Wind for France, an H.E. Bates book. And I was desperate to play the sort of leading part of a pilot in it. And so I went up to audition for it and I thought, well, you know, I've got this in the bag. I'm so perfect for it. And um, I didn't get it. And I was really mortified because I thought I was perfect. And from then on, I never, ever thought, I, you know, I never looked forward to you know, I never say that's what I want to play. That's what I do. I just, I just became a letterbox actor, which means that you wait for the script to come through the letterbox, 
and then you do it. You're not at the point where you have to audition for anything, Nigel, surely. Come on. You're... No, 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 I don't. No, not, I don't do that, no. I made up my mind then that I would never sort of hanker off for a part. I just wait for the part to come. <laughs> that makes sense. Less, less, less disappointment that way, I thought. You know? <laughs> well, look, I mean, just, going, just quickly tracking back to Hamlet, right? You're saying it's too late now. Why? I mean, you're saying that age is an issue here? I, I, I don't see that. I think it might be. I don't know whether Hamlet, how old would my mother be? <laughs> well, Mind you, my true. mother is. My mother's very much alive and well, and she's 91, so, I mean, that's possible. Well, there you go. But um, there you go. It is not, Nothing's impossible. In fact, I'm hoping, with all fingers crossed, at the end of the year, we'll be doing, I'm doing Private Lives by Noel Coward. Yes. With Patricia Hodge. And, and we're playing, you know, the, the couple. We're not too old. I mean, what we d- devised in the way we're going to interpret it is that we're both, we were both divorced, married to much younger people, that didn't work out, so we get back together. That's, that's how we're playing it. You see, where there's a will, there's a way. And this is with your Absolutely. own theatre company, Nigel, isn't it? Indeed. In, indeed it is. David Pugh, the producer, came to me and said, wouldn't it be a good idea to set up your own theatre company? And my ego was obviously so big. I, I said, yes, what a fantastic <laughs> idea. We're going to do three plays over three years, and uh, that's, that's the first one. So, fantastic. Nigel, I have to ask you, because, I mean, I have been a huge fan of yours for such a long, 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 long time. I've admired pretty much everything you've done. I've seen all your films. I've been watching you on television forever. I'm also incredibly envious of your just natural charm and charisma as a presenter, which doesn't seem fair, because some of us have to pay to do that, and it never quite works out. (laughs) What is it that gets you up in the morning? What excites you? What do you think, when you jump out of bed, which I imagine you do, what is it that you think, I'm thrilled to be doing this today? Well, you know, I'm thrilled to be doing anything. I've always uh, you know, gone to the principle that um, another day, another dollar, another day, another wonderful thing could happen. I have to say the people I meet and bump into are always very charming. I, I, I just think most people are absolutely wonderful. So on that theory, one can go out and just enjoy oneself. That's what I think. And when you say people you meet, do you, do you mean as in members of the public coming up going, oh, Yes, it's Nigel Havers, hello. Yes, no, they're always absolutely charming, utterly charming. It seems to me that it's pretty great to be Nigel Havers. There must be some days where you're in a bad mood or, or it's not quite it's not quite as sunny as um, it should be. Well, you know, I, I just didn't last very long. Just um, think, think, you know, think of the moment, be in the moment. That's the best thing. I think. Do you know, this has become a life lessons thing. We, we could make this yeah. a feature, Life Lessons with Nigel we Havers. We could. Yes, you could. We could do it every, every week. A little, one tip, you know. Um, as Bob Monkhouse said once, he said, when I was a child, I, 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 I said, um, I want to be a comedian. And everybody laughed at me. But they're not laughing now. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's perfect. Nigel, I've, yeah. I've been delving into your, your into your life a little bit. I hope you don't mind. But because you, you've had such a no, fascinating, no, you've had such a fascinating journey through through life. You know, starting back in the early days where you convinced your parents. I, I think it was your brother that went to Eton, and you said, "You know what? I'm I'm not up for Eton," which is you know quite a bold move. I want to go to theatre school, and and you got the yes. you got the nod of agreement from that. Yep. I'm, I'm then. I know the timeline is slightly yep. skewed, but you then uh, spent a fair bit of time. How do I say this delicately? Putting a few drinks away with the Rolling Stones. Would, yeah. that, would that be fair? Oh, yes, that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> I was a bit young to put two, a few drinks away, but I was certainly got to know them, which was great. When I, did, I said I didn't want to go to Eton, uh, I'd already done a bit of research on the um, uh, uh, theatre schools, and I worked out there were about a third of the price of being sent to Eton. So I went to my dad with, with, the, with the mathematics about going to a, theatre school and he 
He thought, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> that sort of might have helped a bit. What I love um, about that, Nigel, is that you've, you proved to your father you were already smart enough. Yeah. No, no, that's right. I did. I, I, I did all the research. I found the school I wanted. And I, and I sort of already been and rang them up and said, is it possible to come and audition? And so when he said, actually, that, yeah, you can do that. I said, well, that's great. Tomorrow I'm auditioning. <laughs> and that was perfect. Really? And uh, I, I got in. So that was, it was fantastic. Really fantastic. And let's talk about roles because, you know, let's not beat around the bush here, Nigel. You know, we're, we're both men of a certain age. You're a handsome man. You know, you, oh, I don't know about that. Oh, you're, you do. You've always <laughs> been a handsome man. You're charming. You're charismatic. You're athletic. I mean, I feel like I'm, you know, trying to trying to romance you myself at this stage. But have, <laughs> that that has clearly. I mean, it it must have opened some doors for casting agents and directors. Kind of, we've got to see the handsome one. The fact that you have the talent is is that. Oh, brilliant! He also happens to be an incredibly good actor that can cry on cue and move us to tears. But the handsome thing has helped, hasn't it? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, one doesn't think of oneself like that. So, as I said, I just used to take pretty much anything that came through the letterbox. And I think that, uh, looking back, was a wise decision. It's the, some mates of mine were very picky about the jobs they did. And I thought, well, that's a mistake, you know. You should just pretty much be lucky to be offered anything. So, that was my principle. And I've always sort of stuck with it. And when I made a, a film years ago with Michael Caine, I played his son in the movie. He said to me, uh, I always take any job that comes. And I went, so do I, actually. I said, that's why I'm here. <laughs> Nigel, when you look back across your career, what is it that stands out to you? What was the moment when you thought to yourself, I have made it now. This is, this is it. I'm here. I'm, I'm set. Well, when we all went up, we all wanted to be in Chariots of Fire, you know, and um, every actor I knew wanted to be in it. So um, we all went up and we all auditioned and we all ran around, around fields and we were tested. And uh, I got the gig. And then we trained for like, four or five months. You know, I had to be a hurdler in it, so that was yeah. kind of something I avoided. I avoided that at school. He looked so uncomfortable, but we trained for nearly five months. The film was then cancelled two weeks before we were supposed oh. to start shooting. And then the next morning it was put back on again, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, I could tell while we were making it, this was going to be something special. I don't know why, I just felt it was just sort of blessed. Yeah. Every time pouring with rain and we had to come up to a scene, the sun suddenly came out. Everything was as if... As if uh, Eric Little and Harold Abrams were smiling and helping us. And we ended up with me sitting in, in Los Angeles at the Academy Awards with David Putnam saying to us, we won't win anything, don't worry, just enjoy yourselves. And we did. We won all these things. It was you just, certainly did. You so cleaned up. That, that, that night was just amazing. You know, I just couldn't believe it. And the best film goes to Charity of Fire. We couldn't believe it. Wow. You must still watch yeah, Jerry's yeah, yeah. though. You must, you must still put it on from time to time. I do. If I reach on, I'll have a look. It's just, well, you know, it was, Hugh Hudson, the director, is still a dear, 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 close friend. I spoke to him this morning because Ian Holm, as you probably know, died. He was in the film and a very close friend of mine. So we spoke again today. But, I mean, uh, no, it was a fantastic experience. It was a wonderful film. And, you know, one of those films that everyone remembers and, you know, there it was and it cost practically nothing to make. We got hardly got paid anything to be in it, but it was just such a fantastic job to have. So that's my, that was my sort of highlight, I suppose. Oh, Anyways. It's, it's lovely to hear you reliving it, actually. I mean, you know, every time I, yeah. I kind of picture you running on that beach with the music and, uh, I mean, mm. like everybody, everybody thinks of you running with the music and it's it's just iconic. Yeah, Van Gellis had written some music, so he played it while we were on the beach. Wow, wow that is Maybe. remarkable. So what, he was just there kind of bashing it out and you're, you're charging along? I just, I, I just think that choosing Van Gillis was such a, a fantastically clever, clever thing to do. Really clever.
and in many ways made the film so brilliant. Well, as a team yeah. effort, Nigel, you, you were pretty strong in it yourself, let's be fair. Well, we, we, uh, yeah, we all became great friends. You know, the fact that we, we were training for such a long time before we actually started shooting, we all became very close friends. So that, and it really shows in the film that we, we knew each other. And I've always wanted you know, the idea of being together for months before you actually start shooting is really useful for a movie, really clever. So yeah. making the film was really easy. It was like we were just friends. You know? We were like where we were, what we were supposed to be. We were the because we were supposed to be. My thanks to Nigel Havers. What a treat. Now, I'd like to tell you about a podcast that we produce every single week for the petrol head out there. If you love all things automotive and you like your stars, then I reckon this pod is for you. It's called Driven Chat. And each week we're joined by a famous face who just loves four wheels. We've had people like Mike Brewer on the show, Charlie Borman, David Gandy. And this week we have Boyzone's Shane Lynch. Now, you can find the podcast wherever you get your pods, be that Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, Acast, wherever you get your pods, just search for Driven Chat. Now, Shane Lynch started this week by speaking about whether he loved racing more or making music. Here's a clip. Music definitely never got in the way of racing. It gave me the opportunity to race, without cool. a doubt. Uh, I, I think, okay, I'm, I might have uh, done a little bit of grassroots stuff if if anything i don't think i ever would have had the money to go on and do any more uh i think my uh, especially hot rod stuff i think you're you kind of pigeonholed to to the oval um but to get onto an actual circuit or, or a, a racetrack takes a lot more money and i back then i don't think i don't know my opportunities but music being uh in boy zone into the late 90s without a shadow of a doubt gave me my world of motorsport and that was and basically out of um guest drives to be honest guest drives I think um, my first one me and Ron Keaton did in Ireland my very first race ever was in Ireland we, we were racing uh, Fiat Unos I don't even remember having a race license if I'm honest back then <laughs> and I, I think we were just a loud race I don't know but that's Ireland for well, you well basically because you're in boy zone you don't need a race license <laughs> something like that <laughs> and I think the, the, the I think Ro beat me that day actually so that's what I mean he's, he's definitely a clear second in mad into cars <laughs> uh, I, I had an off you know, I don't, you know, he's a good driver. I've got to say he's a good driver. I'm, okay, maybe I've got a bit more um, uh, rehearsal time under my belt. Racecraft. Yes, <laughs> I'll call it rehearsal time. You know what I mean? Because that's all it is. <laughs> Every time you get in a car, you're just rehearsing for the next race. <laughs> you know what I mean? What I love about this, though, Shane, is that, you know, we, we've, we'll obviously talk about drifting because it's something Aye. that you went on to be, like, really good at. But but it's not just, you know, we've, we've touched on hot rods but if, if memory serves and my memory's shaky so I, I've got to apologise I too right now <laughs> but you if I remember I think it was something like 2003 you were really close to winning British GT weren't you? I kind of came up through the ranks of um, I, try, I tried rallying first let yeah. me go back a little bit before I get to the actual what I would say um, my glory point in motorsport before I went into drifting I started in rally cars and but my gift chance was purely by being a celebrity of getting into motorsport period and I was uh, I was asked to drive in a celebrity race in the autosport show nice back in 1998 maybe cool, maybe okay. about 98 so it's it's quite some time ago and I was like yeah cool love it sounds great mad about cars let's go to the autosport show uh, turned up expecting uh, TV personalities other boy band members or whatever the case would be uh, but that wasn't the case there was John Cleland there was Alan McNeish there was Alistair McRae. Well, these, uh, are, these are peddlers. Oh, no, these, these, these are pure boys. Yeah. You know what I mean? You have touring car drivers, Le Mans drivers, rally drivers. You've got the boys. You've got yeah. the big boys, and then this guy called Shane Lynch from a boy band, right? <laughs> so I was kind of kind of there going, 
That's not that's not a celebrity race. That's a bunch of retired racers and you. Well, yeah, and don't forget, this is back in the day. They were all still in their sports. Oh, man, this is 1998. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just 22 years ago. So, so them, them boys were driving racing drivers. Yeah, and a and dude me. from Boys Zone. Correct. So I was like, all right, cool. So uh, a bit of my car history and just my rear wheel drive skills. We were racing uh, Caterham Sevens. And my 8086 world, as in Toyota Corolla, twin cams, that's kind of my rear-wheel drive world. Um, very used to kind of sideways action. So I was like, yeah, cool, man, KTM 7, no problem. Brilliant. So what I did was the, the, the clerk of the course, let's call him at the time, he kind of said, right, boys, uh, it's just for fun. It is just a show. And, you know, it's not serious, the autosport show. Uh, audience comes in. They all, they all watch you participate in this race. Uh, they said, keep it clean, keep it easy. Uh, to the drivers, and I said, well, okay, Shane, what we're going to do with you is we're going to put you at the back, so you're going to get in the boys' ways, but just go and have fun. I said, yeah, cool, no problem. I ain't got no problems with that. And to hear what happened in that race, well, you'll need to download the Driven Chat podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. Now, after the break, very excited for this, I'm going to be joined by David Badil. Driven with Andy J. It's Driven here on Talk Radio, the show that talks to celebrities and achievers about what drives them. And now I'm so pleased to welcome a comedian, an author, a presenter, a screenwriter, a man who, in fact, I, I very rarely get to tell my mum who I'm going to be interviewing ahead of time. But when I mentioned who this was, her reaction was, oh, wow, he's a clever old thing. And he certainly is. It's Mr. David Badil. How are you doing, David? <laughs> Hello, Andy. I'm so pleased about your mother's reaction. I can't tell you. <laughs> I mean, it's important, actually, to, to have this relationship with a, a random interviewer's mother, isn't it? You know, she says you're a clever old thing. That, that clearly yeah. means a lot. Yeah, I mean, can I ask how old your mum is? Is uh, that okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, uh, she's just about to turn 70. She's about to turn 70, yeah. So I'm probably in between her and you in my age. Yeah, I'm 56. Yeah. So what I'm trying to work out is, you know, which of the two of you, as it were, grew up with me. I mean, obviously your mum didn't grow up with me because she's older than me, but you know, she was probably, because I've been around a long time watching me, you know, God, it's possible that she was watching me in her early 40s. Yeah. So, I've been, you know, <laughs> that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that, yeah, that your mum has possibly been a fan for a while. That's been, why I'm processing that. She has, well, in actual fact, my mum, if I remember rightly, she dropped myself and my mate Pats off to, was it Wembley Arena? To see you and Rob? Oh. So yeah, dropped you off. So you saw, you came to Wembley Arena. We did. So you would have been like what in like a teenager. Yeah, exactly, then. exactly that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When when you wow. guys were were rock and roll stars, obviously yeah. taking, taking on the arenas with comedy, first time it ever been done. I was there. I was a I was a well, properly. I was there as well. Yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. I well, bloody. I'm glad you were there. It was quite a night. I mean, I'll be honest with you. Um, I that particular night was so kind of like big and wild and crazy that I don't have that much memory of it as a gig. <laughs> I've got, I can remember other gigs, both in my own stand-up career and with Newman and Badil and whatever, you know, fairly clearly some of them. But that one, it was just a big event, you know what I mean? And it sort of blew out my sense of it as a standard stand-up gig. Yeah. I mean, it was it was brilliant. I mean, it was such a just the experience itself was super cool. I mean, you know, like you, it's going back a fair chunk of time in my memory as well. But I just I remember being awestruck and just thinking how really very cool the whole thing was. And, and yeah, just, 1993, I think. Yeah, wow. Christmas 1993 It was the last gig that we and Rob ever did together. Um, and um, yeah, it was cool. It was cool. 
but as I say, I mean, because people sometimes say to me, oh, you started the whole trend for arena comedy, and it was the first one, but actually there weren't that many immediately after it. I think arena comedy then sort of didn't really happen for another 10 years or so until YouTube started, and then you know some comedians started to get really big because of the internet, and they were able to play arenas, but I don't remember anyone playing an arena sort of immediately after Newman and Badil. No, that's true. That's a very good point. Yeah. Well. But I'm very there, and I hope you and your mate got home all right when your mum picked you up. <laughs> yeah, we did. We did. It was absolutely sound. It was, that was a great, it was a cracking night. I really enjoyed it. And the lovely thing is, David, that I can actually bring this full circle within the family now for you. So you've heard what my mum thinks, okay? But the new audience is my eldest, my seven-year-old son. <laughs> and I said to him, hey, guess who daddy's going to interview just now? And he was like, who? I was like, the guy that's writing the book we're reading at the moment. Well, written it, obviously. And he, and his reaction, oh, cool. Can you ask him if there's <laughs> going to be another one? So, you know, it's come full circle. So circuit. you are basically entertained your entire family across three generations is what you're saying. I hope you're feeling the pressure because, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm pleased about it. I'm pleased that uh, I've kept you all going. Um, well, that's lovely. Uh, I'm really glad your son is a fan. What what book were you reading? So, well, the new one, Future Friend, which is... Oh, you were reading Future yeah, Friend? Oh, I yeah. thought you might be reading one of the older ones. No, I was very fortunate to, uh, to, to, to be able to get my hands on a copy of the book a few days ago. And so we are, we are four nights of reading into it. Now, you tell me if yeah. this is good going or not, David. So we're, I've, I've literally got the book in front of me now and I'm just flicking through where the bookmark is. So we're on page 255. So that's how quickly okay. we're consuming this book you know he is oh that is good he's cool. loving it i'm literally i finish a chapter because your chapters are quite short i finish a chapter and think yeah. okay I've, I've, that's i can he can clearly see that's a chapter he's gonna let daddy go now oh come on just, how does just it work more, can i ask you more. because my children were well actually they weren't too old my son wasn't too old but i didn't really i read them the books but only as i was kind of writing them okay because partly because i wanted their thoughts right so what I've never done is sit with the book and the illustrations and sort of read it to them. Do you read a bit and then show them the pictures or how does it work? Well, it's a bit simultaneous because, and it also depends on his level of alertness, of course, you know, like, like, cause, cause we're reading in bed before he falls asleep. So right. He's, well, I'm going to take it badly if he falls asleep too quickly. He's, well, no, he's, this is the thing. He's never fallen asleep. I mean, in the four nights we've been reading it, but he has told me he's, he's had dreams that have been influenced by the story, which is lovely. I'm really, I've been really... It's cute. particularly lovely because the first chapter, because it's set in 3020, I should perhaps say this for anyone listening, tell them what the book's about. It's about a girl from 3020 who uh, gets into a time machine accidentally uh, and gets transported back to our time, although for reasons that we perhaps perhaps talk about in a minute, it's not exactly our time, it's 2019. But in the first chapter of the world of 3020, she is in her bed pod and has set her dream to be scoring the winning goal in the World League final because she loves football. And uh, kids, apparently, that I've spoken to already tell me they love the idea of being able to set your dreams, a machine that sets dreams. Yes, yes, absolutely right. And and my eldest absolutely loves the idea of the parrot having a tiny bed as well, incidentally. Yeah. He, he thinks that's brilliant because, you know, again, <laughs> if the listener hasn't read the book yet, there's gadgets, talking animals, robot clones, and I'm not giving any of the storyline away. That's for you to do, should you so wish or not. But, yeah, what I can say is, so my son loves drawing. He's a, he's a very passionate artist, so... He does consume the pictures as well, but he he sees a lot in his head as well, obviously, because you've written it. So I mean, you know this; you've been writing forever. 
you write it so eloquently and, and you paint the pictures already so with your words. So yes, he, he does look at the pictures, of course, but he, his imagination is, is right there as well. Um, how many ch- children do you have? Uh, two with another one on the way. All right, so actually we've got an older child or a younger child. My my eldest is the one I'm 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 reading it to at the moment. He's seven. Okay, right. So seven because my books, I get asked a lot on uh, Twitter or in conversation about my children's books. What age are they for? And I always say, well, kind of any age, really. I mean, including adults, because there's lots of things in the book that I think adults respond to as well if they're reading them to their children. Absolutely. Um, and I also think younger children, like um, a four-year-old or the parents of a four-year-old, told me that they were reading the book, uh, one of my books, to them recently. And I thought, well, that's quite young. But I don't see why you can't, in the process of storytelling, you know, they won't get everything, but they'll still enjoy the process, I would have thought. But seven is kind of great, because the, the sweet spot, I guess, is between seven and 13. Yes, yes. Well, it's, I mean, this was a really, because I, I wasn't sure. I mean, I, I, I kind of checked the internet, and I was kind of, people were kind of coming back with nine years old, and I thought, well, do you know what? I've read my boy Harry Potter, and he's done all right with that, so I'm going to dive mm. in. And he was just engrossed from the beginning. And what I'm really pleased to say, and I'm sure that this was intentional on your part, is he's also started asking the questions almost sort of in the same sort of Attenborough-esque way where you're making things clear about what we're doing to the planet and the food we eat etc you know animals and so on and so forth about how the future perspective is that's not a good thing you know and I'm loving yeah. that that you know we had a conversation over breakfast this morning where he was like so daddy you know the whole animal thing I don't I don't think I want to do that anymore and I was really really pleased and I'm sure that that is in part down to the way you've worded it in the book you're not forcing anything or anything you're just making some very clear points which I which I think are great oh that's cool I mean I'm not going to give any spoilers away but just so 3020 in the book is a dystopia um it's a uh, not nightmarish but you know climate change and as it happens, and this is why I had to change it back to 2019, viruses, mutant viruses, make it impossible for anyone to go out. So everyone just lives in tall towers in 3020. And well, I wrote this in January, by the way. And when Pip comes back to our world, and I got to, I was writing in February by now, I thought this is no good because I wanted her to come back and be able to go out and have fun and feel healthy and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, oh, no, that's no good. So I had to put it back to 2019. So it's now a thousand and one years into the future. So the world is portrayed in 3020, although it's got loads of gadgets and animals have evolved to speak and it's kind of fun. It's also quite dangerous and there's a lot of jeopardy. And so part of the process, uh, without giving too much away, is that when she comes back and she meets Raoul, who's uh, an inventor, he's a child inventor, he actually was a major character in my previous book, The Taylor Turbo Chaser, where he supercharged his best friend's electric wheelchair to become a kind of chitty-chitty, bang-bang-style supercar. He's, she's now gone off in the car to Scotland, and he's slightly lonely, and so she appears in uh, her, his dad's warehouse, this girl from the future. And then part of the process is whether or not they can get her back to the future where she needs to get back to. And in so doing, kind of save the world. But I'm not going to give any any clues as to whether or not they managed to do that. Brilliant. Well, uh, given that I've got a few pages to go now. I'm, I've got so many questions that I can't ask because it'll spoil it for me. Because in the same way that I'm loving reading to my son, it's a new story to me as well. And like you said with adults, I'm really enjoying it. It's really lovely. And this is your first foray into sort of science fiction, isn't it? 
Yeah, uh, it is. I mean, I've written four adult novels, seven children's novels, uh, a film, a play. Oh, well, I wrote a play, actually. God's Dice. Yeah, God's Dice, which was on at Soho Theatre in September and was about to transfer to the West End when (laughs) the West End shut down. Um, And that was about physics. It was about religion and physics. And it was sort of about a girl, well, a young woman, who's a kind of genius and who finds these uh, equations that appear to prove the existence of God and prove the existence of miracles. And it's set in the completely normal, everyday academic universe, but it's got an element of science fiction to it that has, I would say. Um, and I, I really like science fiction. I've read and watched a lot of science fiction. So I hadn't really thought about doing a kid's book, a sort of genre kid's book before, but there's no reason why not, particularly because obviously... Doctor Who is loved by kids and time travel in general is, is a really good idea for kids because, as you say, it's really fun, but it's also kind of educational. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I just went for it. I also am a big fan of E.T. E.T. is one of my favorite films. Oh, yeah. And uh, just the structure of E.T., about a creature that comes from another place and becomes friendly with a boy from now, that very, very much influenced this book. It's very cool. And and another little aside about E.T. that you may not know, actually, um, although I kind of see you as the oracle of many things, so you probably do know this. But I had the privilege of talking to Sir Chris Hoy uh, a couple of days ago, and he cites E.T. as the reason why he got on a bike. I didn't know that. (laughs) It may be the oracle of many things. I don't know why did Chris Hoy get on a bike because of E.T. You'll have to explain a bit more there. Well, simply because as a kid, he watched E.T., he would never even knew that you could do that kind of thing on a BMX, and he immediately wanted a BMX. He got the BMX and six Olympic golds later, and he's then crediting E.T. with it. Well, Okay, but is Sir Chris Hoy still thinking, but it never flew? Why did it never fly? <laughs> I did very well on a bike, but I never flew across the moon. I'm worried he's thinking that now. <laughs> that should have I can been. tell you something about E.T. for me, which is, uh, it was very important for me, which is when I was a teenager, I was quite um, pretentious. I had a big kind of the cure hair, and I was quite like, I'm a poet and whatever. And I didn't really go and watch mainstream films. I used to go and watch a lot of art films. Okay. And I was a bit annoying, is what I'm saying. And um, then one day, as a laugh, kind of to sneer at it, probably, I went to see E.T. And I never cried so much in my life. Oh, it was yeah. unbelievable. I just unlocked this pretentiousness and made it, oh, I see. That's what actual emotion can be created by storytelling. Uh, and I still think, I still think that the end of E.T. is one of the most moving things that's ever been committed to cinema. When E.T. says... I'll be right here to Elliot. It's so unbelievably moving. Absolutely. Uh, And in a way, it's really important for me because I think that made me think, oh, what I want to be is a storyteller. Yes, yes, it's it's such a magical piece of of, of filmmaking. I I still can't get through the the hospital scene. Yeah, I still can't get through it. Yeah, it's very upsetting. Yeah. Yeah, even I mean, even just the music. I've got I've got the hairs on my arms stand, standing up as we're speaking now, thinking about it, David. It's uh, it's ridiculous. A quick one. Can we just go back to God's Dice very quickly? Because I, you know, you, you sort of touched on you know the, the kind of quantum physics sort of side of it and its relationship to religion and 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 this 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 girl who finds, you know, finds this this kind of example of God, which is amazing. And, and it's kind of got me thinking about these incredible TV shows and films that, that have come out recently, like like Devs. I don't know if you saw that on BBC Two. I which, saw Devs. Which I thought was remarkable. You know, incredible piece. Yeah, it's great. You know, an ex match. Dev was great. I mean, actually, I, I really, I'm not, I was no way I wasn't going to watch Devs because I'm obsessed with quantum physics and trying to understand quantum physics. It's 
something to do with, well, it's to do with two things. One is my dad was a scientist um, and he, before he got made redundant and sold dinky toys for the rest of his life. But he was a scientist and in our house when I was a kid, science was absolute king. And, you know, the idea that you would be interested in the arts was kind of like laughable. And I think even though I rejected that with some difficulty because my dad was cross about it, I think it stayed with me a bit that kind of real understanding of the world comes from science, really. And even though that that's a very broad thing to say, I think as I've got older uh, and the idea of like, okay, I need to try and understand the world, uh, that's like part of my wisdom I'm supposed to have as I grow older, comes from trying to understand nature in its very basic forms and that would that really is what physics is, is about um and so i was always going to watch devs because devs i think probably alex garland has got the same thing clearly was written by someone who's read a lot of popular physics books um and yeah no i really liked it and god's dice was sort of in that mold i think it's based on the the einstein quote god does not play dice with the universe is that right it is based. That's what the, that's what the title was based on. Mm. Um, I mean, I don't know how much quantum physics your listeners are, are into, but uh, <laughs> it was. It's based on something. Well, I'm going to tell you very, I'll, very briefly, if I can. Uh, basically, quantum physics suggests that everything exists in a cloud of probability. So, because you can never tell where any particle is, basically everything that we see is just likely to be there, but may not be there. Maybe somewhere else or whatever. And therefore, um, really extraordinary stuff might be true. It might be true that uh, in some infinitesimal probability, um, the Red Sea split in half, water turned into wine. You can provide an equation, which happens in the play, for the probability that water could turn into wine. It's like an infinitesimal possibility based on all the molecules in water and wine behaving really weirdly at one particular moment. And so this girl uses these, this idea to sort of create an idea that maybe all the miracles that we base our mythic culture on, our religious culture on, maybe they are true. And yeah, a kind of religious cult grows out of that. I love it. Wow. <laughs> Blimey. I mean, you know. Unfortunately, it's not on. It's not on at the moment because yeah. there's no theatre. Is it, I mean, is it, oh, I mean, that's a bigger question, isn't it? Is, is it looking like it will return when theatres and I mean normal is such a rubbish name for what we're going back to if we ever get back there but you know what I mean if we get a, a control of this virus which again is 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 like a rolling a dice at the moment itself but should theatres mm. reopen does it look like it will it will go to the to the West End as planned? Um, I, possibly I mean as it happens I got asked to do my troll show. So I, I was, before lockdown started, doing my stand-up show, which is called Trolls Not the Dolls, which is about online rage and craziness and stuff and my own experiences amongst the kind of darkest and most terrible part of Twitter. And I was doing my show about that when lockdown happened and just the other day, because NIMAX, the company NIMAX, who run about five West End theatres, are rather bravely opening them up and doing shows and they offered me a week uh, doing Trolls Not the Dolls, uh, and I, in the end, decided not to do it, not because I don't support what they're doing, but I just thought things are going slightly in the wrong way at okay. the moment, and I'm not convinced that people are going to, certainly not uh, my age of audience, which is kind of over 40, <laughs> and not I'm not talking about the children's books now, but the people who come to my stand-up shows, uh, they said to be people who maybe saw me at Wembley, um, whether they're going to want to come out and and 
and watch shows and sit in an audience if the R rating gets worse and worse. Having said that, I'm encouraged by the fact that stuff is happening, people are trying to put stuff on, plays are scheduled and all the rest of it. And yeah, I mean, I think God's Dice, which had Alan Davis in the main role and was brilliant in it and I think was keen at that point at least to do it again. If, if everything could be put together in the same way, then it would happen in the West End. One interesting thing about that is that the first conversations that I had when people said to me, oh, you want to do this play again, maybe when theatre starts again, is they started saying, but how are you, how are you going to include the pandemic? Right. And then there was this weird thing, which I thought, what, so everything that's written now, everything that's restaged, everything new, is going to have to somehow include the pandemic. And that's odd, because you think, like, well, it's about religion and physics. It's not really anything to do with a global pandemic. But then not to have it in feels weird, yeah. because there are scenes in which people are at parties, and there are scenes in which people are at lectures. You think, like, well, that wouldn't happen. So, yeah, so that was a challenge, which I haven't got down to facing at the moment. Yeah, that's that's a tough one to figure out, isn't it? I guess it's a tough one for all fiction. It's all fiction from now on, apart from period stuff or indeed science fiction. Anything set now, which is when most fiction is set, you know, most novels are just set in whatever time you know we're all existing in. Is it always going to have to include that social distancing and masks and you know all the rest of it? I mean, maybe it is, but it seems to me a bit weird because. Like I saw something yesterday, right? I saw this program, which is on telly now, called Love Life with Anna Kendrick in it. Okay. I don't know if you've seen it. Not yet. It's, no. just, on, it's just on BBC now. Okay. So it's set in 2010, and there didn't seem to be any reason for it to be set in 2010. And I thought, are they just setting it in 2010 to avoid the virus? Which they might be. I mean, that's what I did with Future Friends. I, I set it say, in 2019. Yeah, I, th- I mean, yeah. everything's just going to be in 2019, isn't it, for the next 15 yeah, years? Yeah, we have this weird thing where all drama and all novels are going to stop at 2019. Yeah, there'll be, there will literally be nothing set in 2020. It'll be well, like, unless it's about, unless it's except about the virus. a pandemic show, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Gosh, I mean, I, I mean, I, I've sort of had a look on, on your website because I'd love to come and see you again. And, and Trolls Not the Dolls is, sounds like it's going to be hilarious. It, it does say that you are set to start again at the Watford Coliseum in February 2021. Is, is that still yeah. a big question mark? Yeah, well, at the moment, at the moment it is. But I, I don't know if I'm allowed to mention another radio show, but I did uh, Chris Evans' radio show this morning. He's part uh, of the family. You're, you're more than welcome. Yeah, he's part of the family. Yeah. Cool. Well, I did his Virgin Breakfast show this morning. And I mentioned that, and he said I'd go for September. Um, so, really? Yeah, I don't know that Chris Evans is Nostradamus with this stuff, but I take his point. I can't, I don't feel in my bones that uh, a stand-up tour, stand-up tours in general, will be back on in February. But I hope so. I mean, apart from anything, one of the things that I think a lot of comedians think about is how material dates, like topically. I mean, some of it's obviously topical, so I have... 10 minutes in my show about Trump, okay? Now, I don't know that Trump will be relevant or as relevant in a year's time as he is now if he, if he loses the election. But just generally, when one writes comedy, it tends to feel like, okay, this is like what is of now. You know, it's like guys see it's relevant, even if it's not specifically about politicians from now or whatever. And then suddenly you're doing a show three years after you wrote it. It can feel really weird. So obviously I'll write new stuff, but I still want to do that show that I was planning to do because that's what people bought tickets for, you know. Yes, yes, that's a a really challenging. You've got some dilemmas ahead, David. 
I think we all have, though, Andy, haven't we? It's all, you know, one thing that 2020 has been is challenging. It's created a lot of dilemmas for all of us. Yes. Yes, it's, it's been, I mean, I've heard it sort of described in so many different ways, as I'm sure have you. And, and you know, there's this sort of slightly condescending phrase that keeps coming back, which is the great reset button, you know, for humanity. And it just, I don't really see that. I don't know if I'm kind of naive there, but how is it a reset? You know, we're... we're... Yeah, I don't know if it is a reset. I, I think, because apart from anything, I think we've been primed by fiction, by science fiction or whatever, to think that if there's a great event like a pandemic, and I've actually read a few books about pandemics, um, they tend to wipe out humanity, don't they? Or, or you know, 90% of humanity. And then it's very apocalyptic and everything has to start again. Whereas, of course, what's happened with this is a kind of fractured, limping, you know, things, you know, it was really impactful, but it's not like the whole of our civilization has changed. Some people seem unaffected by it, you know, and then we're starting our civilization again, but they're not, you know what I mean? It's very, it's not like a drama where things tend to be right. Here's the big instigating incident and now everything's different. It's very real life in that it's kind of like shades of gray as to whether or not we've all changed or it's in fact just like it was before, but much more inconvenient. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I feel like it it united everybody for about five minutes. And then some people chose to behave and and do what we were told. And other people decided to completely ignore it. And, you know, everyone just kind of splintered so quickly. You know, people decided to decide for themselves much faster than I think we were anticipating. Yeah. Well, I I tell you what I've heard. I heard it today and I've heard it before. There are people and I guess even I am in a way, who are nostalgic for the early days of what might be considered to be proper lockdown because of that sense that, you know, even though it was harsher in terms of restrictions, there was a sense of community of everyone being in it together. Mm. The clapping felt incredibly emotional back then. You know, it felt more like, okay, we are in this drama and we're all together and we're all pulling through together. Whereas now, with local lockdowns being different and, you know, a sense that, like, oh, well, I'm not sure we're all experiencing the same thing. It, it, it's hard to know how to feel about it. I blame the eye test. Uh, what, um, Dominic's eye test? Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I was him, I'd just go to an optician next time. <laughs> it's really easier. Yeah. And they have them in Durham. <laughs> yeah. No one's pointed that out, actually. Actually, can I just say no one's pointed out? I know, I know a lot of people have pointed out how ridiculous it is to say you had to drive to Barnard Castle from Durham to check your eyesight. Yeah. But no one has said, and I've been to Durham, I played it twice on my last tour, and I remember quite clearly there's a boot and they've got an optician in Durham. <laughs> I don't sure. know why you couldn't just go there. Yeah. Well, in fact, there's probably several in Durham. I'd have thought there'd at least be a spec savers as well. Yeah. Oh, definitely. There's, I'd say there's four or five in Durham. Yeah. There yeah. might even be another one on the way to Barnard Castle. <laughs> there, might, there might be one right by it. I mean, you know, if there isn't, if there isn't a portable optician that has pitched up outside it now, then, there's, then they're missing a trick because that would be... You know. <laughs> yeah. um, David, thank you so much for your company. What a, what a pleasure. What a joy. Um, no, it was a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Lovely talking to you. Driven with Andy J. Hey, welcome back to Driven here on Talk Radio. Andy J here. I am very pleased to be able to be... Well, actually, I'm sat in the kitchen of someone who I am a huge fan of. I'm going to call him Olympic legend. 
But it's Commonwealth. It's basically, if you think 400 metres, you think Ewan Thomas. How are you doing, Ewan? You might think Roger Black as well, to be fair. Now, who? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, who was he? This is all about what drives you. Oh, okay. It's the show that drives celebrities and achievers and what it is that gets them out of bed in the morning, gets them going. And, mm. and one of the reasons why I was really keen to talk to you isn't just because of what you've achieved in your former career, athletics, obviously, but it's because you had a career that you knew had a shelf life. Yeah. Right? And it's, and it's almost about what happens once you've fulfilled dream number one. Well, I didn't really fulfil dream number one. So that's why I think in many ways it, it was harder for me and it's hard for many sportsmen and women who don't have the opportunity to sort of shut the curtain when they want, to right. sort of go out in a blaze of glory. I had lots of injuries and, and, and if truth be known, I kind of fizzled out and I kept thinking one more year I'll get back, just keep injury free. And I didn't. So in a weird way, by the age of 24... I think I'd had a medal from every single major championships and then nothing after that. So it kind of, it came to a horrible end really where I battled with it for a long, long time. I thought I was okay. But then when I look back now, I went through a, a good number of years where there was a lot of anger, I think, inside me. The fact that my body let me down, you know, and, 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 I, and I only had sort of three or four good years and then it said, no, I've had enough. And I could only really train two or three days a week without breaking down, which on the world stage is not good enough. It doesn't matter how naturally talented you might think you are when you're up against the best in the rest of the world you've got to be training every day of the week and unfortunately for me my athletics career kind of like yeah as I said it, it ended a lot sooner than it should have what did you do when you were feeling the anger bottled it up which was the worst thing I didn't ever talk to anyone about it it was a weird situation where I felt if I was to say I'm struggling here I, I'm a bit frightened about my future I thought it would be showing a sign of weakness and I mean this with respect but all my friends are just really good regular people. So I've got my mate Gumbo who works for the local council, my mate Tim who drives a taxi, my mate Stephen who's a fireman, all friends of mine who I felt kind of, I'm not saying looked up to me, but were proud of me. Yeah, They were proud of their mate who's made a living out of something he loved doing, running around, being as quick as he could be. And I felt if I went to them and said, guys, I'm fed up of being injured. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't think I'm ever going to get back to the level I want to be at. I felt they'd turn around and go, are you all right? You've got a nice house, you know, you've owned lots of nice cars, you know, you do better than we do. Well, you're not getting up at five o'clock in the morning to cut the grass or, you know, to take someone on a run in a taxi. So I felt kind of like I couldn't talk to them. And now I have spoken to them. They're all really mad at me. Going, Why the hell didn't you talk to us? Because, you know, I I think the one thing, let's call it depression or anxiety or or dark times. I, I think it doesn't care who you are, it doesn't care how many zeros you've got in your bank, if it's going to get you, it's going to get you, and for whatever reason, we all have different pressures in life, and it's how you deal with those pressures and come back from it, and I think sport, don't get me wrong, sport has been brilliant for me, it's given me the life it has, but it's also been horrible as well, Mm. it's a very lonely place when you're doing any sport, but I should think an individual sport in particular is tough, because when you are injured, when you are sat at home watching it on TV, you're on your own. You're totally on your own, yeah. you know, and, and that's not a nice place to be. Well, especially as well, you know that at your peak, those people you're watching on telly, you can, you've got them. Yeah, that's the worst bit. I, I don't mean this with any disrespect, but I had to go for a number of years. E- even now, you, you could say, I've still got the British record. I've had it 23 years. Mm. No one's beaten my time. I did back in 1997. So when I had the years of injuries, I was watching people win the British Championships in in a time a second slower than I could do and I was literally there like kicking myself thinking I'm, I'm injured but I reckon I can still beat them and that was my problem I rushed back from injuries because I kept thinking no no I could be half fit and, st- half fit and still beat them yeah. and I couldn't but 
you know, it's very frustrating when you watch, in, I think in any walk of life, when you watch someone doing a job, you know you can do better. It's a very, very frustrating place to be. So you weren't able to talk to your mates. You were getting angry. Yeah. Well, not so much angry. I think I was just getting disappointed. At not the system, but just life. Because I just thought, why is it all I'm doing is training as hard as I can to be the best that I can be, and my body's breaking, and I know there's people in my sport who have taken things they're not allowed to take, and I'm sure the things I could have taken that would have got me back from injury a lot, lot quicker. But morally, I would never have done that, and I never would do anything like that. So there I was thinking, you know, I had three or four good years, and I know there's probably certain Americans I used to compete against who failed drugs tests, and they had 10 years at the top. And that's what made me more angry. I thought, you know, why me? All I'm trying to do is be the best I can be. In a perverse way, though, Ewan, you know, retrospectively, at the time I realised, and this is no consolation at the time, just referring to the Americans who took performance-enhancing drugs, that did actually ultimately serve you, didn't it? Because they, yeah. got, they got caught, and as a result, you got a retrospective gold. That was weird, though, yeah. So that was the 1997 World Championships. We just missed out in Atlanta at the Olympics a year before in the 4x4 to America. And in 97, the following year, equally very, very close photo finish, just lost out. 13 years later, we get told, oh, by the way, your world champions, two of those athletes failed drugs tests later in their career. And fair play to them. They put their hands up and said, if we're going to be honest, we were cheating back in 97. Yeah, that's decent, so to be fair. It, they, it was yeah. kind of decent in a, in a weird way, but it was a weird one. We didn't get the lap of honour. We didn't get the 13 years of being crowned world champions. Quite frankly, I didn't get the prize money and the bonus money as being a world champion. So we lost out not just financially, but I suppose morally and the lovely feeling you get from winning. We'll never replicate that. And I don't mean to be nasty to my governing body, but I got my world championship medal in a car park in Birmingham. We didn't even have a big medal ceremony. We didn't have any of that. It literally was, uh, if you're in Birmingham, swing by, we'll give you your medal. And I was like, yeah, all right. And the, and the big kick in the teeth, when you go to any major championships, the medals are beautiful, yeah? So, for example, the silver medal I got from the World Championships in Athens, they had, like, Greek mythology, and, and, and it will have something to represent that country or that city, wherever the games are at. So I thought, do you know what, fair play, the Americans have obviously given their gold medals back, we're going to get the exact same medal in gold. Yeah. It wasn't. It was just a plain gold medal engraved, World Champions 1997. It was like one of those kiddie ones you get at yeah. Christmas that you bite into I threw it under a bed I've never looked at it since seriously yeah and I mean, how bad's that a world champion and I've never looked at the medal since I mean I get it because of the backstory too yeah the backstory and the fact that the medal is is a cheap version of what it should be it was a bit of a bitter a bittersweet that one it wasn't it wasn't the victory it should have been but hey ho that's life. Fair enough, man. You Fair move enough. on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so, you so you're 24. You know, yeah. you've you have not achieved. now. I'm not. I wish <laughs> I was. <laughs> this was 50 yeah, years yeah. ago. Oh, yeah, easy. So, <laughs> <laughs> so no. So you're 24. Yeah. You have achieved, like you said, you've won medals and uh, you know everything in every different competition in which you were competing. You, you yeah. were. It you happened. Were it finishing. happened quick as well for me. I, I kind yeah. of the year I left university. I got the Olympic silver, then it was the world silver, which became the gold. And then the following year, 98, I became European champion, Commonwealth champion, and I won the World Cup in the 400 and then relay medals as well. So in the space of sort of three or four seasons, a lot happened for me. And I think that is in a weird way why it hurts so much to get injured. Like that year that I um, became European champion, I was the first Welshman to ever even make a 400 final, won the Commonwealth Games. I came back. And um, I had a letter from Buckingham Palace about getting an MBE, and I thought it was a joke, so I didn't reply. I thought one of my, <laughs> mate, I thought one of my mates has printed that out. Nice one. Yeah, uh, I'm not yeah. falling for it. And I totally ignored it. And then another letter came, and I still ignored it. It was the third letter, and they were like, you haven't replied. 
And I, was, I thought, Mum, I phoned my mum, I said, Mum, do you reckon this is real? She goes, it yeah. probably is. Yeah. So that year I got the MBE. And then maybe even more proud for me, I was in Madame Tussauds as a waxwork. I was I, coming I, I on was, to that. I, yeah. I was only at the time the second athlete behind Jesse Owens, I think, to, to have a waxwork. And it was voted by the public, which made it even more special. But then I felt so guilty because that was 90, I think I went in in 99 then got a really bad injury and never really ran that well again. And I think they must have melted me down within three years. I don't know. Actually, I have an update on the waxwork. On, no, don't wind me up. I've lo- no, I've looked into it because of, because of this conversation. They keep, they, they, they keep the head and they melt the body, do they they've had They've had the waxwork the entire time. Unfortunately, due to the heat wave this weekend. Oh, B.A., I thought you'd been serious then. So I'd like to buy it. I'd like to buy it. I know that's very vain, but I'd you love have to. have it on the fridge. Yeah, I'd love I'll to have your it. Your head up there yeah. would look amazing. Yeah, because they cost a lot to make. Because I remember at the time they said it's like, th- this was back then, they said it's like 30 grand yeah. to make it. And the weirdest thing is, every time I was going in and they keep doing updates of like, you know, they measure you like literally everywhere. This is the weirdest thing. They came to my flat at the time and they put what, all these little green, everything. They put really? these little green stickers on me. And I said, what are you, do- what are you doing down there? Yeah, and they said, we have to like measure like absolutely all, all of your body. And were you like, hang on a sec. Yeah, yeah, just, give um, me a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and the, yeah, and it, was a, it was a weirdest thing. But when I was being made or sculpted, the Spice Girls were as well. And they were in the studio next door. And every time I went in to see Louis, the guy who was doing mine, I was going, baby spicing today? Sporty spice. <laughs> and I, I kept missing them. All right, them. Posh. Yeah, I kept missing them. But yeah, so at the same time I was being made, the Spice Girls were being made as well. But it was a real honour, if I'm honest. It really was. No, but it's true because you were, at, the, at that time, it was the kind of Posh and Beck's mania, wasn't it? And yeah. you, you were a headline sharer. Well, I think the 400 metres was quite a glamorous event back then. I think because domestically there were four or five of us who were all running really quick we, we really pushed each other on so obviously myself roger blatt mark richardson jamie Borsch, Dwayne ledejo yeah, no, yeah but there was a good there was a good crop of british <laughs> athletes yeah and i think it was a really good time to be a 400 meter runner and a yeah. bad time because michael johnson was around but apart from him i mean and you know and you know he would get really measured yeah in the waxwork department. yeah yeah he would yeah. definitely we all, we could, you know, I mean, you couldn't avoid that. Could <laughs> <you>? <laughs> um, so my point was coming to be really, you know, when the injuries were mounting, when you were kind of the back of your mind, you were like, do you know what? I'm actually not going to be able to do this forever. Yeah. At what point did you start thinking about the next steps? Because, you know, and, I, and I'm going to be blunt yep. and tell me to back away if you want me to. But, you know, we're, we're sitting in your beautiful house. You know, yeah. you, you've got a, a Absolutely stunning. You know, it's the kind of house that you'd see in a magazine, right? You live in a beautiful house. Some of your toys I'm incredibly jealous of. You've got some Hot Wheels in the garage. Yeah. So you have a, you've set a standard for living. Do you know yeah. what I mean? But athletics obviously provided you a certain level of lifestyle yeah. where you don't want to then go and do something that's going to be a step down. Well, I think I was quite smart, if I'm honest with you. Smart or tight, whatever you want to call it. But my dad has always been really savvy and quite strict with me. So when I was doing well as an athlete, apart from cars, I didn't really waste money. I, you know, I, I bought properties straight away. As soon as I right. could afford a house, I bought a house, kept that, got another house. I kind of was quite sensible. And, and, and I wasn't stupid. I knew being an athlete, even before my injuries happened, wouldn't last forever. So I knew this was a career that could be short-lived. But my second career, if you want, doing bits and pieces with TV or whatever, you know, I do, I, I kind of fell into it. I was always one of those athletes who really enjoyed the interviews at the end of a race. You know, I, I, I loved it. I'd, a bit of a prankster, a bit of a personality, if you want. I felt I had a personality anyway. And I, and I used to really look forward to, you know, Sally Gunnell, whoever it was, chucking a microphone in my face at the end of a race. And I, and I just loved it. And I never felt phased by it. But I think for me, when I realised, oh, this is all right, 
I had a documentary done about myself in the late 90s and I had a camera crew follow me around literally for, for two years and I, I wasn't really phased by a camera you know I can totally ignore it if someone's filming us at the moment it doesn't bother me so I just quite enjoyed it and then towards the end of my career I had a couple of injuries and you always get asked to do different TV programs when I was you know running well and you do the odd question of sports or bits and pieces but obviously my training had to come first I then ruptured my Achilles and had a long time out and at the time, ITV approached me and said, look, we were doing this show. And in the end, the show didn't really work out, which was a d- disappointment. But it was a program called Celebrity Wrestling. And it was a ma- like Gladiator. It's a really big Saturday night show. It was a big show. And I ended up doing that. And I won it. And I just really liked the whole fake bubble of TV, you know, yeah. getting looked after. And, you know, yeah. and, and I think really, like, in fact, so- someone the other day on social media, I can't remember, I think I put up a picture of my motorbike and they messaged me and they said, you're lucky you are. And I felt like going, but so I'm not lucky. I've worked hard in life. Do you yeah, know what I mean? When yeah. people say you're lucky, I just think, no, you make your own luck. You know, I, I worked blooming hard as an athlete, you know, and, and I, I've also worked very hard in trying to create another career, you know, so... I've done lots of TV shows I wish I hadn't. I've worked on things I thought, well, but you know, I've, learnt, I've done my graft, if you want, I think. But I've worked quite hard, and, I, and, and once again, I'm not stupid. It's like sport. You'll get out of it what you put in. It doesn't matter how good you might think you're in front of the camera. You've got to work hard, and, you know, doing stuff on the one show or wherever it might be, like you do. I do my research, I prep, I, I work as hard as I can. And also, I know this career won't last forever. So, you know, I am looking at other things as well. I've got business interests as well, a few bits and pieces I, I do away from the weird world of this. TV and radio. You're very, mate, you're weir- very good at this weird it's world. It's a weird though. world, though, isn't it? It is a weird it world. It is, it is, and it's also transitory. You know, I mean, I've had a 25-year career now, and some years are ridiculous. You know, yeah. you, you, you don't stop. You don't actually yeah. see any friends or family because you're working eight days a week. You know, it, it's amazing. And then the phone stops ringing for months, and you're like... It's like oh. being an athlete. Yeah. It's like being injured. And it is, it's a really... I'd say it's an insecure industry. If you're insecure, this is not the industry to be in because like you said, you can go absolutely ages where the phone doesn't ring. You think, oh, crikey, I'm not flavour of the month anymore. What's happening? And then all of a sudden you'll have three months where you'll flat out and you'll think, oh, I want a day off. Yeah. You know, but but it, <laughs> yeah. it is how it is. You know, yeah. But I think you've just got to be aware of that and you've just got to realise it isn't a regular nine to five where you're going in, you're getting your, your pay packet every month and you know where you stand. It, it's quite a strange world to be in, but yeah. I quite like it. I quite like the buzz of it. That's it for this week here on Driven on Talk Radio. If you'd like to hear more from this week's guests or indeed hear from our massive back catalogue of celebrity conversations, then please do check out the Driven Celebrities podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts and it features all sorts of extra conversations and we often go along with the guests that you've heard today and throughout the weeks on Talk Radio. It's the Driven Celebrities podcast, wherever you get your pods. Now, on the show next week, we're talking to rugby legend James Haskell, top presenter Jason Bradbury, and Strictly's Anton Dubeck. Driven with Andy J.